Today's show is brought to you by HBO. In a world of incessant data tracking, one tech startup is working to create a brand new internet, and that startup is Pied Piper. It's a totally decentralized, totally awesome, and too-good-to-be-true network, only on HBO's Silicon Valley. This tech could make the world a better place. Catch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. Please now join me in welcoming Nell Scoville and Kara Swisher to the Commonwealth Club. Uh-huh. Thank you, Marissa. There we go. Thank you, everybody. This is so, I've never been to this location. It's quite lovely. Um, is everyone so hungover from all the Earth Day activities? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, thank you for coming. I, I have to read this part uh, for the beginning okay. of the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club tonight's program in forum. I'm Kara Swisher, founder and executive editor of Recode. Tonight, it's my pleasure to be here in conversation with Nell Scoville. That's me. Nell's lengthy and incredible career, that means you're old, I think, in Hollywood has, a, has spanned writing, producing, director, television, and more. You know her from words from Sabrina, David Letterman, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, and many, many more places. She's usually the woman behind the scenes, but today she's here to discuss her own experiences in her new book, Just the Funny Parts, and a few hard truths about sneaking into Hollywood's boys club. Uh, I've got a lot of questions, so let's get started. Um, so I want to know, this is called Just the Funny Parts. I do want to know the unfunny parts, um, okay. <laughs> I, I, if you don't mind. I want to get to those. But I, wanna, no, I, I almost I, called it Just the Angry and Bitter Parts. Okay. I didn't <laughs> but that was like an eight-volume set. Okay. Um, so tell me about why you wrote this. You've been in Hollywood for, you've had a very long career, and, yeah. I, and I, I, I realize you actually wrote for Larry Shandling. That was one of your first ones. Yeah. Um, Talk a little bit about what got you to write this. What was the, the impetus? Well, I realized if I didn't write my memoir, who would? Right, that's a fair point. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, it's, um, in some ways, my life is a lean-in case study. Mm-hmm. And because I've worked in pop culture, people might not be interested in me, but they might care about David Letterman and Homer Simpson. Um, mm-hmm. And so I thought it was a good way to, you know, come come for the, the pop culture, stay for the feminism. Mm-hmm. Because looking back, I realized, um, I mean, the book's about the three things I love most, which are comedy, creativity, and equality. Mm-hmm. And they're all intertwined um, throughout. Throughout your life. Yeah. Um, why don't you start to talk to me about the beginning? Because why you go into, you obviously come from a funny family. It, yeah. You are all cracking up. You've got a pair of aunts that are very funny. Your dad is funny. Um, what got you going in the area? You, you were, you, at one point you said you're going to be a doctor, but your TA in college <laughs> said, no, no, thank yeah. you. Because you sort of failed basic so, chemistry. So I, I did. <laughs> I grew up very funny uh, family. There's this um, classic story of my sister Alice on the couch reading Little Women, and my um, aunt walked by, tapped her on the shoulder, and said, don't get too attached to Beth. (laughs) (laughs) And... Uh, my aunts had like this very dark sense of humor. It wasn't self-deprecating, <laughs> right. which is what I think a lot of yeah. female comedians were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I and they got all this positive attention for it. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I was dipping my toe into those waters, and I came through this circuitous route of journalism mm-hmm. and sports writing, right, and. Uh, 
We'll talk about that a little. So you okay. you were you were going to college. You were thinking of because your was it your your mother couldn't be a doctor. Your aunt couldn't. My grandmother. Grandmother. That's right. Your grandmother yeah. couldn't be a doctor. So none of my grandparents went to college. Right. Right. And they um, only one was born in this country and one finished high school. Mm-hmm. So immigrants. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Are they legal? <laughs> Just asking these days, you know. Um, so they came here, but you were you thought about going to be to to do well, what, what your grandmother couldn't do, right? Where you know you're a doctor or a lawyer in Massachusetts, right. and and that doesn't when those don't work out, journalist right. is the yeah. fallback position, right? Right. Um, so that's how I got to journalism. So you wanted to do what? Tell stories. That was the concept of that. You were, you worked on your student newspaper. Yeah. You then continued. But I, but to do I so. get to college, right. and um, the first day when they were telling us about the. Um, the Crimson, a guy gets up and he says, anyone cool, stick around. We're going to talk about sports writing. Mm-hmm. And I just had this flash that I'd never been cool. Right. <laughs> and here someone was offering me an opportunity. And I'd grown up in Boston. Right, so Late therefore. 60s, right. early 70s. All the teams are great. Right. Um, I watched them. I knew a lot about sports. Uh-huh. Uh, and talk about doing that, because I, I have almost no sports ability. I have almost no sport. Well, I couldn't write about sports. And I believe I'm the only lesbian who hates sports, but go ahead. <laughs> Move on. Um, so it's, sports are tribal, right. and they're very emotional. Mm-hmm. It's the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Yeah, I got that part. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and you, you learn to care about the characters. It's not right. about the box score. It's about the towns and the people in them mm-hmm. and the hopes and the dreams. So it really did appeal to me more than other parts of the paper. Plus, they were very serious, and it always seemed like if you screwed up, you could really get someone in trouble. Right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> That's the point. That is actually the point. Yeah. yeah. So um, I loved, and you know, my fellow sports writer at the time was Jeff Tubin, uh-huh, uh-huh. who we all know on CNN. Yeah. And so these were really entertaining people. Entertain, entertain. So talk about moving into TV and why that appealed to you. Now you watched a lot of television, you talked about it. I'm going to quote you from one of your favorite Twilight Zone. I think it's a Twilight Zone episode. Oh, The Prisoner. The Prisoner. But we'll talk about that in a minute because we're going to get to the Facebook part just for Elliot sitting in the front row. Um, but, but, and writing it <laughs> lean in because I have a lot of questions about how you got into that. But talk about going to Hollywood and what you were t- thinking. What was your dream of Hollywood? Because everybody has a, a concept of that life? I had no concept. Okay. <laughs> and it really, it wasn't this dream. I, I moved to New York. I'm writing for Spy Magazine. Right. Um, Which, uh, the best. The best. Right. And Tina Brown then hires a, me away to go work on Vanity Fair yeah. in Her the late 80s. Her book is 80s. amazing, by the way. And um, I think everything's set when one day I bump into a friend who's also, who was an editor at Spy, and she mm-hmm. says to me, Nell, I don't mean this as an insult, but I think you could write for television. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and that was the Why first time... Why did you shift? Because that was a place to be. Like, Spy and Vanity Fair was the spot. Yes, although you make a lot more money in right. television. Right, right. Um, and so, like, here's the thing about trying something new. It, it really should be the easiest thing in the world. Because right. if you try something new and you fail, and you succeed, it's great. Right. And if you fail, you just say, I've never done it before. Right, right, like, okay. What's the big right. deal? Right. So I try writing a TV script, and I basically knew one person in Hollywood, but that's all you need. Right. And um, 
it goes to the Gary, it's Gary Shandling show right. and they buy it. Mm -hmm. So you won't get this, but I, it was like being a rookie yes, getting a home run at his first at bat. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I got it. Okay. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but so, I, you know, and then suddenly, you know, I'm like, oh, well, this is, this is interesting and challenging. Right. I've, I've always liked the challenge. Um, so I just kept at it. But I think it did help that I always knew I had this fallback of a magazine career. Of a career. A yeah. career. And, and, you, I, and I've always kept writing. Yes, you have. So did you, so when you go there, did you have the concept of it? Because let's talk about the feminism you talked about. Like, did you understand what the writing room was about or understand the, the, the ecosystem there? I was just with a, co a comedy writer who's on a new Netflix show and I said, and she's one of the higher produce, higher yeah. ranking producers, but she said, oh, I got the woman slot. Uh, you know, yeah. it's like nine men and one woman. And, and it's still, and I, I was like, still? This is still the situation. And she was, of course it is. Yeah. Um, so did you have any concept of that? Well, early on, I just wanted to blend in. Mm -hmm. I, I really loved it. It was fun. And I just thought, if they don't notice <laughs> I'm right. a girl, right. they'll let me stay. Uh -huh. um, and Did they notice? Uh, no, not for, for a long time, mm -hmm. and, okay. uh, <laughs> which was great. I, you know, and I like sports. I like science fiction. Right. And by the way, I didn't think those were male things. Those were Nell things. Right, right. Um, so I did fit in, although um, I tell this story about, in the book about my first day at David Letterman, mm -hmm. um, where there had been one female writer, Meryl Marco, mm -hmm. who's from this area. Yeah. And... She'd also been Dave's girlfriend. She right. leaves the show after Wrote five years. an excellent years. book on dogs later. So funny. Right. And she invented dog videos, which basically means she invented the internet. Right, right. Because right. that's what it's there for, right? Right, right, right. Well, cat videos, because... So she was... <laughs> she's gone for two years, no women, and then they hire me. Mm -hmm. um, and I get there my first day, uh, another writer stops by my office, we have a chat, and at the very end, he says to me, before this is over, I will see a tampon fall out of your purse. And I just was dumbfounded. Like, and for 20 years, I would ask people, what do you think he meant by that? <laughs> Because, well, what do you think he meant well, by that? Well, Sheryl Sandberg is the one who yeah, taught me yeah. what I think he meant yeah. by that, which is she taught me about stereotype threat. Right. Which is when, you know, women, girls are told they're not as good at math, so mm -hmm. if you give girls and boys a math test and on the first page make them check off what their gender is, mm -hmm. that creates anxieties and the girls will perform yeah. worse. Uh, and so I think he was reminding me that of my gender mm -hmm. and trying to kind of throw me off my game. What, what did you wish you had said right then? Fuck you. I don't know, uh, something yeah. clever like that. You know what would have been good? No, but no I... you know what would have been good? <laughs> oh, I don't have a uterus or something like that. And the word uterus would have upset a man, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, you know what would have uterus really set him off? I'm a free bleeder, <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's better than no uterus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so talking about being, but being in Hollywood, because one of the things is the boys' club, the, this idea, and then yeah. we're going to get to me too, obviously. Um, it's a hop, skip, and a jump right there. Um, what was it like working in that environment? I mean, because it's you obviously had a great time. You made friends with Conan. Yeah. You know, you had this the Wilton North. You had these great Conan O'Brien, all these other people who were such 
became move right. on to other things. Um, talk about that. I, that what that was like. What's that like being the girl? Because you know, I'm thinking of like this doesn't date me because because it was quite a bit earlier than me. But the Dick Van Dyke photo, they always had Rose Marie in the room. Like, yeah, you know what I mean. The wisecracking gal. By the way, they had. Um a third of their writers' room was female, so they were right. way ahead right. of right. what most of Hollywood was. You know, I really um, tried to focus on the work, and, but it always astonished me that there were a few times when I did feel compelled to represent all womanhood. Mm-hmm. I was on this show called Coach, mm-hmm. and they came up with a story, um, a, a plot point where... Do people know that show? Yeah, it was- So, yeah, uh, Hayden and Christine are about to get married, but it was too soon to let them get married. We wanted to save it to the end of the the, um, season, so we had to break them up, and so the guys were pitching a story where Hayden just says to Christine, I'm not ready for this, and she says, well, okay. Mm -hmm. So I, she's like this independent, strong woman, and I kind of go, I, I... I don't buy it. Like, right. why is she okay with this? Right. And all the guys in the room shouted me down, and one said, well, my wife would be fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I bet she would. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, You didn't say that. It was, it was hard because um, you, you wanted to represent, but they didn't always listen, and then it always became, how hard do you fight? Right, right. And, and that's kind of the through line of yes, this exactly. book of like I, I start fighting more and more and more until 2009 mm-hmm. when Letterman famously gets goes on air and says I've had sex with women who I work with mm-hmm. and I decide to um, you know write this piece in Vanity Fair that just calls out not just the harassment, but the lack of women in the writer's room. So talk about that. What does it do? What, is it, how, what happens to comedy when that's the case? When, when the lack of women in the writer's room. When, oh, well, it's, um, you know, it's a fairer, fairer sampling of humanity will always produce better comedy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, studies have shown, too, in corporate, it always, uh, you have less harassment, you have better work-life policies, um, and more profitability. Mm-hmm. You just have more experiences to draw from. So talk about what, when you think about that, because it just doesn't change. It doesn't change here in Silicon Valley. It doesn't change. Why doesn't it change? Still in Hollywood, I want to, I want to get your thoughts on where we are in the Me Too movement or the post whatever, uh, whatever you want to call it. Well, I, I think it's the just very deep cultural bias that mm-hmm. we're all fighting. And, and um, there's a story I tell in this about meeting Gloria Steinem. Mm-hmm. And she had just come back from India and was just telling these incredibly um, depressing tales about how there were five million girls missing. Mm-hmm. That, that boys and girls are born equal in India, but by the age of five, there are millions of girls missing. And she said, why? And Cheryl was there, and Cheryl's nodding. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, it turns out these families won't pay for med- medicine for the girls. Right. So um, this just like hit me so hard. And I, I said to her, you know, I can't believe I care about late night TV when things are like that are happening in India. Mm-hmm. And G- Gloria said to me, you worry about late night TV and I'll worry about India. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what she meant by that is 
there's so much work to be done everywhere. Right. We need man-to-man -man defense. So whether it's in tech or um, finance or philosophy departments, you know, there's, wherever you can have an impact, you should try to have an impact. So, but should it be your job? You know what I mean? Like as the woman's job to do that. I remember, I remember Cheryl, when I interviewed her once, she was talking about having, being the woman who brings up women's issues in yeah. Disney board meetings or wherever. Um, and she does it because that's what you do. Do you, does it have to be you to do this? Or, or it just doesn't happen? Well, it, it doesn't happen. I got a call not too long ago from a um, colleague of mine, someone I worked on a show with a million years ago. His daughter wanted to get into comedy writing, and he asked me to help her. Right. He's a comedy writer. Right, right. Her father. I got it. <laughs> and what did you say? Well, what I wanted to say is, you know, if you wanted to help your daughter... Back in the day when there were no women in that room, you would have hired some. Right, right. Um, and instead I said, sure, I'll talk to her. Right, right, yeah. right. Okay. Um, yeah. wait, so what, what, from your perspective, is the state of what's happening now in Hollywood? Do you think it is the, you know, I'm interviewing Ronan next week. Uh, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you imagine that things have changed or is it just back to... I haven't, you can cherry pick data to support um, that things are getting better. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen sustained statistical data. You know, the year after Catherine Bigelow wins the Oscar for Best Director, right. there was actually a decrease in the number of women mm -hmm. directing feature films. Right. So I don't... Um, you know, Tina Fey didn't end sexism any more than Barack Obama ended racism mm -hmm. in this country. Right. And, and sometimes I worry that... Uh, when you see those high-profile people, you think, oh, it's done, and people actually stop working to make things On better. On the real things, so that they yeah. cleared up the, basically the worst of the group, but not the real problem. So what, how does that change? How does that happen and change? And then I'd love to get your thoughts on, the, on where TV is right now, because it's sort of this idea of golden age of television. Like, what would you, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to go back into it? What do you, we'll talk about that, but wh yeah. where do you think it ends up? Where, where do you imagine happens next? That it does fade, that they, well, they got the bad guy. The worst guys. case scenario is because we've had Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby, which are so egregious right. that we end up in a place that if you haven't raped a dozen women, you're a gentleman. Right, right, <laughs> you know? right, right, like, right, right. I mean, two of the producers who condemned Harvey Weinstein, I know for a fact, have both settled sexual harassment suits. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't make me feel really good about the whole thing. Um, my personal opinion is that Me Too was born out of the feeling that women have nothing left to lose. Right. You know, and we watched Donald Trump win this election or steal this election. Um, and so now there's no reason not to speak out. Right. right. So is that a good time for comedy or, or just complete depression? Always. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, yeah you so need it more than ever. So talk about the state of what, where are we with comedy right now? It seems there's a resurgence in journalism, obviously, a resurgence in a lot of areas. Do you think comedy has addressed that? doesn't seem like well, it. Well, I think Hollywood lags behind yeah. the times. I, yeah. I don't think it's at the forefront. I always, the example I use is um, 
Think of when Condoleezza Rice was Secretary of State and how long it took to get to scandal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's <laughs> right. That's you know, like yeah. George Bush be, be yeah. in Hollywood. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, I hadn't thought about that. It's interesting. Um, but what, how, what do you imagine Hollywood needs to do now? Because Are, are they not setting the time anymore? Are they not the... Well, the, the studios cult- are still all run by men. Right. And, and I... I I do believe that leadership makes a huge difference. I tell a story in the book about um, working with Ann Sweeney at ABC, mm-hmm. who Cheryl put me in touch with Ann because Jimmy Kimmel only had one female writer who was his wife. Mm-hmm. And they were moving to 11.30, and I thought um, that seemed like maybe not a good situation. Right. And. Uh, they sent a bunch of writers to them. They hired two. They turned two women, and they've done great. But think of all the firepower it took, right, to, to get, get them. two women hired on the Jimmy Kimmel show. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. We'll return to my conversation with Nell Scoville at the Commonwealth Club after this. Today's show is brought to you by HBO, and today in the red chair is Russ Hanneman. He's one of Silicon Valley's most notorious investors, and he's recently emerged as an aggressive player in the cryptocurrency market. Welcome to the podcast, Russ. Thank you, Kara, and you're welcome, by the way. Uh, for what, exactly? What do you mean, for what? I, I basically invented the podcast. <laughs> for what? You invented the podcast? I put radio on the internet. That sounds like a fucking podcast to me. Not that I'm making shit off it. That actually brings me to my first question. The standard internet funding and sales models have served you pretty well over the years, but now you're jumping feet first into ICOs. Why? Kara, this town is filled with assholes getting rich off crypto by doing jack. The Winklevoss twins put in some loose change five years ago. Now they're Bitcoin billionaires. So yeah, I'll buy a ticket for that fucking ride. You don't feel like you've already missed getting in on the ground floor? If I could change the past, I I wouldn't have a kid at home right now snorting up my ADHD meds. I can only focus on the future. H-O-D-L, bitches. So I'm hearing you already have taken 36 companies to ICO. How have you fared so far? Well, you know, I'll be honest, Kara. It's been down, you know? It's been up. It's, It's been mostly down. You know, 35 of them have, you know, fucking tanked. 35 out of 36, what happened? I mean, this is, this is the game, all right? First, it's the SEC. Then it's one of your founders running away with your cash. Then it's a bunch of fucking hackers deciding that instead of edging in their basements that afternoon, they're going to come after your blockchain. Then one of your CEOs dies like a pussy. Anyway, listen, I'd rather focus on my successes. My success. One of them worked. And what was your ROI on the one that worked? Radio on internet? No, return on investment. Return on was. investment. Yeah, I know. It's 300M, all right? That's a million. And it's on some thumb drive in the middle of a landfill. My boys are on it, though. You ever lose a drive with a ton of crypto on it? No, Russ, I haven't. Yeah, you have. Uh, no. But thanks for coming on the show, and good luck with that thumb drive. Watch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. So where is television now? I mean, do you want to... It seems like there's, again, there's so much on Netflix is doing yeah. it and all these tech companies are doing it. How do you look with the tech companies running it now or, or, or at least investing in it? We've got Apple. Yeah, uh, and paying Netflix. $6 million an episode. Right, exactly. Netflix, yeah. Amazon, obviously yeah. Google, Facebook are, are all moving in that direction. How do you think of... Will that change things or just make it even more brotastic? <laughs> <laughs> By which I mean bro awful. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't know that business side so much. I, I do think 
Hollywood has always been more interested in the potential of young women than in the experience of middle-aged women. Right. right. Um, and that's frustrating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when these tech companies get involved in funding these things, do you see a shift? There are more and varied shows on those platforms, it seems like. Yeah. Or not. Well, Roy Price was yeah. a terrible example. And yep. he had just, it was so sad, he had just canceled the, um, the, gr- oh, good, the Good Girls. Uh, good Girls, yeah. Yeah, and that was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. That's a great show, Nora. Yeah, it was a good show. Yeah. The Good Girls Revolt, yeah. Yeah, um, it was about uh, people who worked for... Uh, Newsweek. Tel- Newsweek, and, and it was based Nora Efron. It's kind of bad many. And, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Nora Efron's uh, experience, too. Well, it was Lynn Yes, it was, but yeah. all of them. I remember her talking about working there. Yeah. Um, so do you imagine... Um, I'm trying to get is, is it, will it make any difference with these billions of dollars flowing in from elsewhere that's not based the way Hollywood is set up? Will that actually change Hollywood? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wish I, I, I no. Well, you spend I mean, a lot of time it's with tech men. people. I mean, I right. think, yeah. and, and the hard part is when you're pitching your experiences right. to men. I mean, I'm, I wrote a movie based on Lean In. I <laughs> think it was a good script, mm-hmm. and it's in Turnaround. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was Explain a great that title. Explain for the people. And they, instead, they made Female Ghostbusters. Right. And one of the issues with that script was the lead woman wasn't a mess. And they kept saying, couldn't she, like, couldn't you put in a makeover scene? <laughs> women mean, love like, makeover scenes. What do you mean, like trying on bride's yeah, like, dresses? Like yeah, like pretty women. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I see. So it's hard because not... And, and this was women right. giving these notes. And the problem is you, you look at what's been successful. Oh, it's bridesmaid. She, she's a mess and she's trying to get her life together. That movie worked. Mm-hmm. You know, all movies should be like that about women. Well, Wonder and you don't Woman, say that Wonder about Woman men. was not a mess. She was quite good from the start, right? Who was like Wonder Woman? I'm trying to think of something. Yeah, Wonder that, Woman. She wasn't a mess. I like that movie. Yeah. She, <laughs> well, she started off perfect, but um, and then went That's up. That's right. And then went uphill, right? But there was uh, a makeover scene. Was there? Yeah. Well, they made her when up. he t- when he first brings her to civilization. Yes, that's true. Yeah. But they, like, make her less sexy. It was the opposite. <laughs> it was, they did. No, but she, like, shows up at the ball with the sword down her oh, back. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Fair point. Um, all right, so when you, when, you, when, when you think about that, talk about Lena and the movie thing. What ha- so you write, what was the plot? How did you make a plot out of that? Well, it's interesting. I won't go into too much detail, but... Everyone sort of assumed it was going to be about a group of women who are best friends and how they have, you know, some choose to go into the workplace and some choose to have kids. Um, And I said, no, it's going to be about two best friends Mm -hmm. who are graduating from law school at the same time. They both go to work for the same law firm. One's a man and one's a woman. Mm -hmm. How do they get treated differently? Oh, wow. Yeah. And also, I love the idea that the man and woman were, were... Best friends. We're friends. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> You're not going to say. Is it going to get well, made? Well, no, it's, it's in turnaround. Maybe Amazon or Netflix will make it. Right. And what, why do you think it, 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 it had problems? Because turnaround means it's just sitting there. Like many, lots and lots of movies are in turnaround, yeah. right? They just sort of sit yeah. there. Uh, I, uh, I don't know. We did a reading with Kristen Bell, and mm-hmm. it was really fun, and mm-hmm. she, she loved it. She wants. I don't. I, you know, Hollywood is. I've I've worked in Hollywood for thirty years, right? And it's still a mystery. 
And I do think it's one of the reasons I wrote this book was I'm still trying Confused. to figure it out. Confused, because you've had a number of hits. I mean, what, what, of all these, you know, I'm looking on these, what was your favorite of, of these? Well, Sabrina? Sabrina the Teenage Witch, yeah, I created it, so I got along with the boss best okay. on that show. <laughs> All right, okay. Uh, and then um, second was Murphy Brown. Yeah, I loved great working show. on Murphy Brown. Great show. And that had a great cast. It did. They're bringing that back, supposedly, right? They're they bringing, are. That's, yeah. You know what I realized the other day? Murphy, you know, comes out in the 90s. She right. has a kid out of wedlock. Right. Dan Quayle criticizes well, I was just saying, it. Yeah, yeah, Dan We Quayle. got the same vice president. No, exactly. Worse, actually. Right? <laughs> I mean, he would let do me the just same. say, I want Dan Quayle back, uh, if you can believe <laughs> oh, it. <no. laughs> you know, but I remember I was living in Germany at the time when Murphy Brown had the kid out of wedlock, and yeah. then Dan Quayle was arguing with Murphy Brown. And, yeah. I, and the Germans <laughs> just didn't get it. And, and they, they're like, why is your vice president arguing with this <laughs> character Murphy Brown. And I said, well, she's fictional. Why is he arguing with a fictional person? I said, because it's America. Because that's why I didn't know what to say. I was like, you're right. It's ridiculous. It's, it's fucking ridiculous. Like, I don't know why. And I remember Candace Bergen once saying, as an actress, you want to be on the front page of the arts section, not the front page of the news section. Right, right. Which is impossible now, right? Yeah. It's kind of, I mean, that, think about that now. I mean, yeah. it's interesting when you think about like how, but that had a massive impact on people because it was discussed. You know, in yeah. television when it's its best, like Ellen, I'm gay, that kind of stuff. Um, so and NCIS was fun because it was so popular right. and, and 20 million people would see your writing. What, what do you think has changed about television in terms of how they're going to write for the audiences? You know, we both have teenage uh, yeah. kids. Um, how do you think about that now? Do you think the people in Hollywood are prepared for, to entertain this next cohort? Well, you are seeing more of these like mini series of the, and, and, short series, because I, I think that is the wave of the future. Mm -hmm. Meaning, how, how, so how, do you think this group of people are different in watching and listening? I don't, necessarily. Because I can see my yeah. kids, they're very, they like The Simpsons, which you worked on. Yeah. They, they like, they like the, the, the normal way things are done. It's just they watch it differently. Or they, co they consume it differently, I would say. Yeah, I, the, um, I was shocked. So I have two sons, and like one watched every episode of Scrubs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, Scrubs? <laughs> like, I don't even know how it started. But right, right. Yeah, right. no, it's, it's different. And I do wonder at cer a certain point, do you just go, we have enough content? <laughs> right, right. Like and now, because, you know, when I was a kid, you couldn't. You right. know, if, if you miss Batman, you miss Batman. <laughs> right. Are you worried about sort of the economics of Hollywood in that way? I, now, you're not as involved in it, but when you yeah. think about the way people are consuming... Um, they're using social media. They're using all kinds of things um, and entertaining themselves through reading Twitter or wherever. Do you imagine having Hollywood having to change and annoy? Because the costs are enormous in Hollywood right now to make things. The no, I don't. I don't. Um, so the last show I was on was The Muppets, mm -hmm. and I we had the same problems in the writers' room with everyone's watching videos and on their their phones, and mm -hmm. so that I think that all feeds into it also. How do you consume now? I watch everything on my phone, I think. Almost everything. You know, it's amazing. I remember 10 years ago, um, working on a show, HDTV was just coming right. out, maybe 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And we had to go to um, like a seminar to teach us about how 
they said makeup was going to change right. and, right. and um, sets were going to have to change. And, and now everyone's watching on their phones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, they got it so wrong. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, it's going to be immersive. You're going to have VR. You know, it's yeah. going to be more immersive and presumably it's going to be. It's interesting people are working. Like a lot of, I did a podcast with John Favreau, not the political one, the other guy. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, he was doing a lot in VR. Oddly, oh. oddly enough, I was sitting at a table and Viola Davis was talking my ear off about VR. And I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Can you say a line from, from How to Get Away with Murder but for stories, me, please? People still like stories. Yes. So. Yeah, but she wanted to she, be immersive. She wanted to do Shakespeare in VR. Yeah. Which I would and I do listen think, to that. <laughs> I do kind of think technology beats content. And here's my theory why that's true. All right. It's called the Gutenberg Bible. Okay. Right. right. Yeah. Gutenberg got top billing. Okay. All right. <laughs> so. Oh, that's a really deep joke. Um, <laughs> that's a really, that's, a, that's an East Coast joke, really, in a yeah. lot of ways. It's almost European. Um, so, um, so I want you to read from Post Numbers, then I want to talk about Lean In a little bit, about how you're looking at it. How many years now? Is it five years? Five. Five, yeah. I know. It's astonishing. Four million copies? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You were talking about that. Like, this book is not selling four million copies? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you could call it just the funny parts of Leaning In or something like that. I wanted to write a... I wanted well, Cheryl you, wrote the foreword. Yes, she yeah. did. She did. Um, I wanted you to write a sequel called uh, Fall Over. Uh, Lean In and Fall, and Fall Over, and then just put them next to each other. Well, I do... My joke was always, if I... Uh, you know, without Cheryl, if I had written something like Lean In Alone, I would have called it Bargin. Okay, <laughs> and right. nobody would have read it. Right. Okay. Um, so, so talk about when you're thinking about it, your involvement with it, because you were more involved than a, you know, there's lots of people who do ghostwriting and there's a lot of people who do co-writing. It was a collaboration. Yes, it was. Right. Yeah. So how do you look at it now? Because obviously it still has controversies attached to it and what the messaging it is. But how, when you look back on it, what do you think of it? Oh, well, there's nothing I'm prouder of working on. Okay, tell me that. why. It's a mi- it was a mission, and we... And I, I say it's the book I wish I'd read at 25 instead of helped write at 52. And, you know, I watched Cheryl's TED Talk in 2010, right. and I learned more in those 14 minutes mm-hmm. than, you know, it, she just crystallized so many things. And she brought up issues... I always thought it was me personally. So one of the things she says in that um, TED Talk is, you know, sit at the table, which I always love because it's both literal and metaphorical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I tell the story about when I'm the story editor at Newhart and all the writers are sitting at the table. I'm the lowest level. No one waves me over. Mm-hmm. So even though I've written the episode, I go and sit with the assistants. Mm-hmm. Now, I always thought that was me being shy. Right. Right. And then Cheryl's talking about, you know, people mm-hmm. not, women not sitting at the table. And I go, no, there was some cultural pressure that was telling me to go do that. Right. And then she also talked about Heidi Howard's study, mm-hmm. um, which is how success and likability are positively correlated for men and negatively correlated for women. Mm-hmm. So I'm the showrunner of Sabrina, and I'm trying very hard to be nice to everyone, polite to everyone, listen to everyone, and I'm still just getting pummeled all the time. And again, I thought, and it's not that I never made any mistakes, but I I watch Cheryl and I go, oh, I 
was up against this really stiff wind. Right. In and terms she just of made you, me feel so much better. So what should you have done in that case? Well, I think if I had been more aware, mm -hmm. you know, you can, there are ways to surface it. And I wouldn't have felt so personally right. frustrated. Yeah, I think likability is overrated. That's my policy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I... Too, right? Really. If, if, if I had just embraced it, yeah. it would have been the other way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you have to embrace who you are. Like, if you if you enjoy being dislikable, it's fine. If you don't, it's you know. Yeah. On the fence. Yeah, I'm not a pleaser. I'm not a pleaser. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, so. Uh, so there's a lot of controversy about Lean In. The idea that, that you know a lot of feminists attacked it. How did how do you look? What would you change from them? And what do you think of some of the criticisms? And I could go through them. At length, but yeah. you, you know them. You know them is your fault. Is you're responsible for it. There's all kinds of criticism. The time it was, even at the time it came out. Um, well, what's amazing is we tried to get ahead of that, and in the book, in Lean In, mm -hmm. you know, deal point blank with people will criticize this book for being X, and um, that so many of the criticisms came from people who hadn't read the book or mm -hmm. hadn't read it closely. Right. Um, the good news is it started conversations, which even if it was a, you know, put lean in on the defense, right. it was, you know, someone once said to me, what did we say before we said lean in? Right, right. And it's, we didn't, we didn't talk about women being ambitious. Right, right. Because it was considered a bad thing. Yeah, there were some there were some concepts around that idea, but you're right, there wasn't yeah. one. Would you do anything differently in the in the uh, if you something yeah. you correct? What would you change? Well, you know, Cheryl wrote that incredibly honest post about mm -hmm. after Dave died and feeling like she didn't realize how hard it was for women mm -hmm. who don't have partners, right? And and to have addressed that more. Um, you know, it's so hard because on one hand, you know, who speaks to everyone? Nobody right. speaks to everyone. <laughs> right, right. In terms of what, what you're doing. But what would yeah. you stress now, like in the ensuing years from, you know, with Me Too happening and all, all the Trump victory? Um, is there some other message you think women need right now? What would it be called? Well, I, I do think... Lean further in? Keep leaning? <laughs> or what? No, the book I, I would like to write is um, for men, and it's called Make Room. Mm -hmm. Because I do think women can lean in all we want, but if men aren't making room at right. the table, then, then it doesn't translate. So what, explain that. What does that mean? Like, just get out of the way? Get the, no. Mine would be get, called get the fuck out of the way. <laughs> I'm coming through. <laughs> No, I have two sons and literally... Move back, I'm a coming through. through. <laughs> I literally was walking down the streets with my sons and they were taking up the entire frigging sidewalk. And I was like, <laughs> we were in New Orleans and I was like, move out of the way. They're like, what? I'm sorry, I didn't notice. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I, think, I was in New York recently and it was raining and I was obsessed. Men have these huge umbrellas. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> it's like, like, yeah... Like the man spreading on the subway, but with umbrellas. Right. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of that. Uh, so I, I, I think that, um, the, well, just, you know, making room. If, boy, if you're a guy and you're 60 and you're on three corporate boards, how about, how about dropping off of a couple and, and saying you want your spot filled by women? Right. That's a, that's a, fair, yeah. that's a fair thing. So what do you... Um, what do you want to do next? What do you, besides writing this? What's your What's your next thing? 
And I know you're going to read a section about peeing, I'm hoping, right? Is that the one? Yeah. <laughs> I might. Um, I, I would love to direct again. I have a chapter about directing. My mm-hmm. mentor was Arthur Penn, mm-hmm. who directed Bonnie and Clyde. And I directed two crappy cable movies. Um, but I say in the book, it's like asking Michael Phelps to teach your five-year-old how to swim. Right. Which okay. is kind of crazy, but if he why says not? yes, why not? Right. Um, so I have all these amazing emails that Arthur sent me while I was directing um, in Vancouver. Uh, so I really like that. And that, unfortunately, um, has it, it was hard for me to get those jobs. And mm-hmm. my agents were not supportive of me directing. I made right. more money writing right. for them. And it was hard to sell a woman as a director, especially, mm-hmm. you know, I started 20 years ago. So I haven't made my 10,000 hours. And so what do you have to do to get that? What would you like to direct, a TV show, a well, you know, I have a, a stack full of scripts that I right. would love. Because it's more fun. Because r- directing is like writing in 3D. Right. And you do, once you've written for long enough, you see it in, in your head. Yeah. And you didn't want to do that at the beginning from the start. No. Um, I, I say in the book that one of the things that compelled me to direct was I had worked with so many bad directors. Right, right. And I, I knew I wouldn't be great, but I knew I could be better than mediocre. Right, right. <laughs> so and that's what I was shooting so for, how better do you than get mediocre. There now? How, how, how does that happen then for you? Uh, I, um, you know, you get in touch with producers and uh, it's... What, what, I'll look into it. I mean, one of the things you when did say in the book, over. It's when your book tours over, um, when you were saying that you have 11 years, and there was a point where you said you have 11 good years as a writer or something. Yeah, no, like that's that. the average uh, career span for a TV writer. Right, because? Because that's just it. Yeah, you, um, well, people drop out. Actually, it's probably a little longer now because there's so much TV that I think people are having... Right. longer careers. But they're also... So the book is structured according to this old Hollywood joke about the four stages of right. every writer's right. life, which are, I'll use my name, who is Nell Scovell? Get me Nell Scovell. Get me a younger, cheaper Nell Scovell. Mm-hmm. And who is Nell Scovell? <laughs> <laughs> so, so people, you know, you cycle through. Yeah. So where are you on that now? Well, I hope I, I want to loop back to get me now to go back. Possible? Yeah. Possible. Um, let's move into um, uh, politics just a tiny bit. And then I want you to read, actually, maybe the section you want to read. Oh, from. well, so one of the chapters of the books are about the ones that got away, about shows that um, I almost worked on or people I almost worked with. And I mean, if you like disappointment, Hollywood is a great yeah. career. Rejection um, all the time. So... This is one where um, I was submitted to work on Seinfeld after its second season, mm-hmm. or first season. And people forget. Like, it wasn't Seinfeld, good. The first season was it not It wasn't good. good, and it was really on eh. the bubble. Yeah. So the executive wrote my agent back um, and said uh, he enjoyed my, my Newhart and Simpson script very much. And he would hope to, um, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David would consider her for next season. As you know, the bigger issue is whether we have a next season. So I I have this hanging in my office because it's such Mm -hmm. a good reminder. Um, But, uh, and I say, uh, Seinfeld was on the bubble. It scraped by for two more seasons before breaking into the Nielsen Top 30. 
A meeting never happened, but I held on to the Castle Rock letter because it offered encouragement early in my career. Now it hangs in my office as a reminder of how the greatest success story in the history of television came close to getting canceled. I did eventually get a chance to work with Larry David. In 2007, Curb Your Enthusiasm threw out a net soliciting ideas for the upcoming season. I typed up a few notions, including one where Larry needs to bring flowers for a hostess gift and decides to steal them from a roadside memorial. <laughs> Seems right. Larry bought the concept and turned it into season six, the Ida Funkhauser Roadside Memorial. The show didn't give me on-screen credit, but they paid me $2,000. Larry also gave me his word that the show would pay writers better in the coming season. With this incentive, I pitched some additional story areas. Larry seemed interested in one concept, but it didn't move forward. A year or so later, we both attended a book party. Our mutual friend, Kimberly Brooks, introduced us. Larry, do you know Nell? Nell, of course I know Nell, Larry said. In fact, I was just talking about you today. Whoa, Larry David was talking about me? That felt good. Really? How come, I asked. Well, one of the producers said you'd sold us two ideas for episodes, but I insisted it was just one. <laughs> <laughs> We argued about it, and now here you are. You can solve the mystery. <laughs> oh, I said a little disappointed. It, it was just one. Yes, said Larry, happy to have been right. <laughs> but you did like another idea of mine, I added quickly, trying to save face. Which one? The one about the pee drinker. Larry looked confused, so I repitched the idea. Larry's at a party with a guy who won't stop talking about all his thrilling adventures. The guy goes hiking in the Himalayas, helicopter snowboarding, sailing around Tierra del Fuego. And in every story, he runs into complications and recounts how, in order to survive, he was forced to drink his own pee. Later, Larry sees the thrill-seeker go into the bathroom with a near-empty bottle of beer. And when he comes out, the bottle is filled to the brim. Larry watches as the guy takes swigs from the beer bottle and becomes convinced that the guy is drinking his own urine. The great adventures are just a cover. The truth is, the guy is purposely putting himself into life-or-death situations because it's the only socially acceptable way to drink your own pee. <laughs> I didn't say to die at the end of the pitch, but it was implied. <laughs> I looked at Larry expectantly. He shook his head and offered one long, drawn-out syllable. No. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you know. It would have been a good episode. Yeah. I well, think it would have been what? funny. Right now, topical. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> allegedly. Um, <laughs> in any case. Um, I have one more thing I want to ask about. You have on the back of the book, it says, who is Nell Scoble? And you give your history, and then it said, the millionth woman to have an awkward conversation <laughs> with Larry David. And yeah. I would agree with you, that was quite awkward. <laughs> Um, no. Mostly because of you and the pay situation. Um, so one of the things you said, your love of science fiction extended to TV shows. I do want to ask about this because you have worked for you worked for Facebook for a while. Did you work for Facebook or just Cheryl? Or? Well, I, I wrote jokes for Mark Zuckerberg, right? Who That's, was very funny. Good luck with that. Wow. Good. Okay. 
What's your best joke you wrote for Mark Zuckerberg? Oh, probably when he was on SNL, I, I wrote a version of the joke, I invented poking. It, it became I invented poking. Uh, Mark tweaked it and made it very good. A big laugh. Okay. All right. <laughs> I got to go back and look at that. Um, I don't remember laughing heavily on that one. But anyway, um, but I'm sure it was funny. Um, so you, you were talking about liking Star Trek and Twilight Zone. And so the prisoner's defiant number six declaration, I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, Brief, debriefed, debriefed, or, or numbered. numbered. My, my life, life is, is my, my own. own. Watching the hearings last week, I need a joke. <laughs> what did you think of them, the hearings? Because that was about being numbered and briefed and With the, the Facebook hearings? Yeah, yeah those. Yeah. Oh, I didn't, I didn't see them. I've been traveling a well, What lot. do you think about the controversy right now around social media? You know, so I was an early adopter of Facebook, like yeah. back when you needed a .edu address. Mm -hmm. Because my, I had a niece who was at Harvard. Um, I think she was two years behind Mark. Mm -hmm. So one day my sister calls me and says... Emma just joined this thing called Facebook. She won't let me join. But basically, so I joined to narc on my niece. Okay. Because okay. <laughs> you got a Harvard address because you went there, right? Yes. Yeah. And um, I, you know, look, as, as a writer who prefers to communicate through words, it, I mean, it's been a wonderful thing mm -hmm. for me. I'm, I, I'm on that site. I've been on the site probably every day mm -hmm. since then. So, um, you know, social media works for me, and I love it. Mm -hmm. I don't and are you worried about any of the privacy or the Russians, for example? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, although I think the... You know, I, people, the, we wouldn't blame the telephone because people were plotting a, a robbery mm -hmm. over the phone. That's the best defense of Facebook I've ever heard from anybody, really? including you, Elliot Trey. <laughs> Honestly, you should be working there because otherwise their defenses are really no, bad. No, I mean, we, have, we um, have big problems. I saw the, like, burning swastikas in Georgia yeah. yesterday, and yeah. that, that's the big problem. Yes, of course, absolutely, yeah. 100%. We're going to take another break now. We'll return to my conversation with Nell Scoville, the author of Just the Funny Parts, after a word from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever need to send money internationally? Sure. Your bank or PayPal can get your money from A to B, but that transfer will cost you more than it should, a lot more. That's the old way of doing things. Let me tell you about the new, smarter, and cheaper way to send money internationally, TransferWise. TransferWise was founded by two friends, Tobit and Christo, who were frustrated by their bank's bad exchange rates and high fees. They wondered, what if we could bypass the banks entirely? So they built TransferWise. That was seven years ago. Today, more than two million people use TransferWise, people sending money home, businesses paying suppliers, freelancers getting paid, the list goes on. TransferWise's clever new technology gives you a great exchange rate and a low fee. So it'll put some extra money in your pocket for more important things. No one has ever said it's important that my bank get some extra money. Test it out for free at transferwise.com slash podcast or download the app. Once again, that's transferwise.com slash podcast. It's the wise way to send money. I'd also like to tell you about my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. Every week we answer your questions about consumer tech and this week's news. This week I talked to investor and entrepreneur Jason Calacanis about startups. Jason, what's the favorite thing we talked about? Go to town. You have one second. <laughs> I think uh, talking about Facebook, Tesla, and Ariana Huffington, 
<laughs> and also Trump, who's just been tremendous with the tax cuts. Okay. It was a great Huge. discussion, and we Fun. hope you'll go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. All right. Yeah. Questions from the audience? <gasps> so, um, where do you go? We're in the back here. So, let's start right there. Right okay. here. So, we're going to start with a question from social media. All right. Which and, social media? The Twitter um, or the Facebook or... It's from Twitter, but okay. the question is, um, there are there's still a very large lack of women in late night comedy, yeah. especially in the people that front late night comedy. It's almost all men now that we've lost Chelsea Handler to Netflix. So I'm wondering who you would like to see on a late night television show, a woman. So right now it's just Samantha B, right? Is that correct? Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, it's just Samantha B, right? You know, now. I did. This is interesting because I recently was talking with an executive producer of one of those shows, and he said, "Well, you know, but," and he said, "I know we're trying to do better, um, but all the hosts are white men, and so what do you say? You know, the, that the rooms have to write for them." And I said, "The writers aren't writing for the host," and he said, "They're not." I said, "No, they're writing for the audience." Mm-hmm. And, and someone's got to figure, you know, make, make that uh, change. Um, Desi Lydic is on The Daily Show. If you watch that, she's amazing. I think she's hilarious. Uh, I'm trying, I mean, they want, like, specific names. I, I don't... That was just the general question, but I think that is a good answer. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah, there's plenty of people that could do it. Oh yeah, I mean, I did, like Ali Wong's is super funny, and there's so many. Thanks for coming tonight. I was wondering how you feel being in the spotlight after so many years behind the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I am so sick of talking about myself. <laughs> um, it's so hard, and. I was on Colbert the other night. Yeah, talk about that. Well, that was, I was just through the looking glass. And, um, you know, I've been on those sets a thousand times, but never with the cameras on. And he did something that was so nice of him. He, um, so I've written jokes for President Obama, and I wrote for the White House Correspondents' Dinner for five years. And sometimes they get asked, like, would you write for Donald Trump? And I always say, I, I would not. But then the question became, could I write for Donald Trump? So I sent in a bunch of jokes, trying to get inside his head, very roomy. And, um, <laughs> and so Stephen, I was sitting there, and he read a couple of the jokes. So writers are always in the wings when the jokes get told. And to be able to have the experience of like sitting on stage and feeling the audience like, okay, laugh. recite the jo- some of the jokes. What? Recite some of the jokes. Oh, well, one of them was um, people got upset because um, I said Stormy Daniels was smart and reminded me of my daughter. Um, in my defense, I couldn't say she was smart and reminded me of my sons. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my theory is Trump... So people say he doesn't have a sense of humor. I disagree. I, I think would, I agree. I disagree. He, I, I he's think mean. He, yeah. And and if he tells jokes at other people's expense. Right. 
Right, so yeah. it's like a Don Rickles kind of character, yeah. right? I mean, I, well, he didn't do this one, but I, one I wrote was, um, I have two daughters, Ivanka and the other one. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not funny. He does that right now. Um, okay. All right, so next question, another question. If any of our live audience members want to ask a question, please come back here and feel free to jump in. I'm going to ask another one, which is, what... I know you spoke about how there's a lot of content right now, but I'm curious about what TV shows perhaps you would like to be working on right now that are out there. Yeah. What do you like? Well, <clears throat> there's a show, Another Period, that was created by Ricky Lindholm and Natasha Leggero, which I just adore. Mm -hmm. It just What's makes it me laugh. It's on. Comedy Central. Right. Okay. Um, what do you like about it? Oh, it's so absurd. I mean, it's like, the, it's the Kardashians living at the turn of the century. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So it's... And what else do you like? What among the popular shows do you think are pretty good? Uh, I don't watch a lot of regular television. Um, I love Outlander. Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with Outlander. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to work on it because I like it too much. Right. I'm actually good. Like, I, I know some writers always guess the plots. I'm not like that. I'm yeah. not on the clock. They're not paying me. I'm not right. going to guess your story. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like Westworld? I, don't, I haven't watched that. Yeah. I watch John Oliver and Samantha Bee every single week. Yeah. I never miss those two shows. Right. Yeah. Anything else? I like, and Seth Meyers, I'm watch, I watch his closer look. So you stick, look, so you stick with Colbert. comedy. You don't, do you, there's not dramas or like Homeland or Game of Thrones. Or... Oh, Game of Thrones, but that hasn't been on for like a decade. Yeah, that's true. That's a fair <laughs> point. <laughs> um, I like, for some reason, Madam Secretary, but I don't know why. It's because her clothes are really nice. Oh, well. I want her to be Secretary of State, too. Uh, next. In the book, you say that if you're a comedy writer and you haven't insulted anybody, you haven't tried hard enough. When you uh, get to that point where you've offended somebody, how do you realize it? And then what do you do next? Do you apologize? Right. Well, the, the um, quote I say is that if, if, if you're a comedy writer and no one's ever said you've gone too far, then you haven't gone far enough. And if they're constantly saying you've gone too far, then you're an asshole. <laughs> I wanted to write, then you're Bill Maher. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't. Yes. Uh, you know, I think that's, it's a hard line to learn. Where did you go too far? Give me a go too far. Well, I just did on Twitter the other day. What did you do? What did you do I, on the should Twitter? I, should I go tell? ahead? Yes, of course. I just asked. You're well, compelled I, to answer. What? You're compelled to answer. <laughs> I compel you. I took it down. Um, I took that photo that was uh, from the funeral, which had the Obamas and the Clintons and the Bushes mm -hmm. and Melania, and um, I photoshopped in one of Melania's nudes. <laughs> and the crazy part was the Photoshop part wasn't the first lady oiled up and nude. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. And what did you say? Well, and, and I said, you know, one of these people graduated from Yale Law School, one from Harvard Law School, one has her master's degree from University of Texas. Yeah. And one posed news, nude for a living. Guess yeah. which one? Oh, yeah. That's too far. Oh. That was too far. Yeah. That was too far. Yeah. Melania. I know. Yeah. Melania. Well, she's having a nice dinner tonight with the French. She must be like, Macron, wife, yay, you're here. Um, 
I wanted to ask about Manuel. timing and delivery, because, I mean, you write for other mouths, but usually it's an actor or something. What's it like when you're writing for Obama or Hillary? I mean, do you get to tune them up and say you're delivering this wrong, or do you just sort of... <laughs> like, what's it like watching that? Uh, well, Obama's got, like, Johnny Carson's timing. I mean, he's so good at delivering a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish he would do a late-night talk show. Yeah. That would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Uh, There was one moment where I wrote a joke which required Obama to wink at the end, Mm -hmm. and I realized um, that, you know, he's the leader of the free world, and I had compelled him to do that. Mm -hmm. So for a millisecond, I was the most powerful person on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He can wink. You can tell him to wink. And and Hillary, um, I wrote jokes for the Al Smith dinner, yeah. and um, right before the election, she had her highest poll numbers the right. next day. Yeah. It was a week before Comey's letter came out. Yeah. Um, and she's very self-deprecating. I she thought is. she did a great job. Yeah. 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 I told an inappropriate joke to her once. I did. <laughs> yeah. We came off stage at Code. I guess I could tell it now. And uh, she, we came off stage, and she really was very she was great, she was mad, and said a lot of the Russia things that have now come to pass, and nobody believed her at the time, but she gave this interview, and it was really tough, and I, I came off stage, and I said, oh, you're going to get a lot of trouble from Fox News, like, you were just on fire, Hillary, and she's very self people know yeah. she's very funny, and stuff like that, I said, you're really in trouble now, and she goes, ugh, what do I care, they think I killed four people, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, the, the Anthony Weiner is still alive. Proves the Clintons don't kill people. So that's funny. And she was, and she looked at me and went ah! and laughed. <laughs> it was, it was like a millisecond of I was like, oh my god, I went too far. But I didn't. I could read some jokes that she yes, didn't deliver at right. the Al Smith dinner. Um, Donald defines non-traditional marriage as between a man and a brunette. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Uh, on Dr. Oz, Donald said that he gets exercise from moving his arms while he speaks. When I, when I heard that, my eyebrows got a great workout. <laughs> Whoever wins, I think it's fair to say that the quality of basketball in the White House will drop. <laughs> All right, good ones. I like the, the brunette one's my favorite. Go ahead, right here. Just two more questions, I guess. Go ahead. Oh, yes. Um, Nell, you've uh, recommended women writers to a lot of different jobs, not just the one you mentioned. I was wondering what catches your eye in a, in a writer reading a script or something like that? What, what, what attracts you to that writer? Uh, well, two, I guess two things is, you know, something that just makes me laugh out loud. The only problem with that is then you're just looking at someone who has the same sense of humor as you, right? You know, Jill Twist, who's now on John Oliver, would tweet, um, uh, you know, I feel sorry for gluten-free pigeons. <laughs> you know, and I just, like, that really appealed to me. Um, so, but then sometimes I look for jokes I wouldn't ever think of making, you know, and, and that's, um, because I think that's the broadness we, that you want to see. So it's not just like, oh, they're funny like me, but they're funny in a way that's different from me. All right. 
And we're just going to wrap up with this last audience question. Okay, great. As the last questioner alluded, and the New York Times specified, there are women who you help find jobs for, writers who you're now corralling and helping and mentoring. And I just wonder if you'd give a shout out to people you want to acknowledge, mentors and teachers of yours. You know, the, if, if I had to name one, I'd go with um, Barry Kemp, who created New Heart. He created Coach. Um, I was coming out Letterman, which was an unpleasant experience. It had been my dream job, and then five months later, I quit. And I landed um, on coach, and, and Barry was, uh, he's, he taught me that kindness and strength can go together. <laughs> and I just had never really seen that. Uh, he was also the funniest person in the room. Um, I tell the story about how when a joke didn't work, he would always put a question mark next to it, and then we'd go back into the writer's room and pitch out new jokes. Um, and it took me a while to realize his question mark meant no. It's what other people would do with an X. But he was so respectful of other writers mm -hmm. that, that he didn't do that. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. a great story. All right, now you have the last thing is... Um, oh, that's right. That's right. You got that? Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's now the informed tradition to ask all our speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Now, what is it? Well, I'll go with um, men making room. That, that men acknowledging that we can't wait for the next generation. I have a pet peeve when the movement, women do this too, say we need to do this for our daughters. And what I always yeah. hear is we're putting it off for a generation. And so I think anyone who cares about equality, look around your, your room. What if we started every meeting by stating what the makeup of the meeting was? Mm -hmm. You know, oh, how many that. people have, yeah. what? I do that. Do yeah. you really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Just like make everyone aware how many, uh, how many people of color do we have? How many um, women are in the room? And, and then change it. Because I thought awareness would lead to action, but too often I see awareness leads to defensiveness. <laughs> right. and, and let's all admit we're culturally biased and change it. All right, make room. Make room. All right, everybody. Let's give a big round of applause for Mel. I survived uh, Tara Swisher. Oh, I wasn't being, I was being nice. That's because you're funny. I'm gonna save it for, uh, for Mark Zuckerberg, for example. Like <laughs> you're a lovely person. I'm very happy to be here. Anyway, um, this is a great book, Just the Funny Parts. It's on sale, and she'll be signing copies in the lounge shortly. Thanks for coming tonight to this beautiful spot, and I'll see you next week. But uh, again, Nell Scoville. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Nell Scoville for joining me on stage, and thanks to the Commonwealth Club of California for producing the event. Nell's book is called Just the Funny Parts and is available now. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, or just visit recode.net slash podcast for more. 
If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. That helps them discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out one of our other Recode Radio podcasts on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You're hearing no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference, which is coming up, and Code Media. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. Wired Magazine says HBO's Silicon Valley captures all the dick moves and dick jokes. I would agree with that, and I enjoy them quite a bit. It happens to be eerily timely as startup founder Richard Hendricks pivots this season to launch a decentralized internet free of ads and data tracking. It turns out that the road to an autonomous peer-to-peer network, whatever that means, is paved with misguided car purchases, stealth acquisitions of Pizza App, and a lot of public puking, as well as an ICO. No one said launching a startup was easy. Watch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. HBO.